We are actually in Acts chapter 18. We're going to start Acts chapter 18 this morning. And um, Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. So uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. This morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version of Acts chapter 18. We read, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a manner of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This morning, I want to talk with you about help for God's servants. Help for God's servants. I wonder this morning if you've ever been hurt or you've ever been let down. Perhaps at some point in your life, you have trusted someone in the past and they did not follow through. It is my experience in life that as long as there are people in this world we will be let down and we will experience pain and we will experience hurt. In fact, there are times in our lives that we perhaps have felt that God has let us down. How do we handle disappointments and hurts? How do we deal with it when we are even disappointed in God? In my experience, even though our disappointments with others may be justified, our disappointments with God are never justified. 
because the problem is always on our end and it's never on God's end. What we often fail to realize is the simple fact that God is indeed working all things for our good, even though at times it may not seem or feel like it. And so this morning I want us to focus in on God's help for his servants. Paul leaves Athens in search for an area more receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it seems as though perhaps Paul is eager to leave Athens because we know that he is waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him, and yet he leaves Athens without Silas and Timothy. Paul is human. He must have felt somewhat disappointed as he walked the 50 miles from Athens to Corinth. Since Paul has come to Europe, he has been beaten jailed in Philippi, rejected primarily by the religious elites at Thessalonica and Berea, and was mocked and witnessed indifference by the Athenians. Sounds great, doesn't it? Now before we think that surely Paul is no ordinary man and that he would never succumb to any of these notions that, that things were uh, uh, hard for Paul and that, that surely he, he didn't know what it was like to go through a hard time Paul dispels that because here he is heading to Corinth and we can read how Paul felt when he arrived in Corinth from his very own words when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 he said this and I when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now listen, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You hear those words? Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Paul was hurting and was in need of help. Can I just say to you this morning that God has been faithful to First Baptist Church right here in Washington. In fact, for 67 years, God has been faithful to this local church, but those times have not been without difficulty or hardships or tears or pain. But nonetheless, God has helped this church. However, God's help does not mean that we will not have trials. But please understand, just like God has sustained this church through past hurts, and past trials, he can and will sustain us through future hurts and future trials as well. But we should respond with being faithful to him. Paul doesn't give up even though he is hurting, which leads us to our first point, And that's this. All followers of Christ go through difficulty. All followers of Christ go through Difficulty, regardless of what we hear from people like Joel Olstein, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Creflo Dollar, and any other members of the word faith movement, we go through difficulties. Sometimes when reading the Bible, we may think that some of these biblical people didn't have struggles, they didn't have hard times. In fact, when we think of the Apostle Paul, we would say that he was bold and that he was courageous and that he was determined. If there was ever a type A person, it was the Apostle Paul. Rarely would we think that Paul was afraid or discouraged or even weak. Yet, as we already read, when he arrived in Corinth, 
He said he was weak and fearful and in much trembling. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, in all our distress and afflictions, even though Paul was an apostle proclaiming the word of God, even though we would describe him as bold and strong and courageous, he struggled in the same way that you and I struggle, in the same way that we struggle. Paul still had great difficulty. Why? Why would he say that when he came to Corinth, he was weak and fearful? Well, as we briefly mentioned, he had some rough times. Let's look at those rough times a little bit deeper. First, let's recall that when Paul was in Asia Minor, remember he wanted to go to the providence of Asia, which is modern day Turkey, but the Lord forbade him from going. And then he thought he would go to Bithynia, but again, the spirit of the Lord prevented him from going there. And in the midst of this, he had this uh, this vision known as a Macedonian vision where he had a vision of a man from Macedonia crying out, hey, come help us. And so he, they concluded, Paul and his companions concluded from that vision that they were supposed to go to Macedonia. Remember, Paul was with other travelers at this point. And they said, hey, we got to go to Macedonia. Now you think that since the Lord so clearly called them to Macedonia that everything would go smoothly, right? Because God called them there. So that means that everything's going to be perfect. Wrong. In Philippi, Paul, Paul and Silas are falsely accused. Then they are unjustly beaten. They're placed in stocks. They're thrown into the inner jail. They leave Philippi, they head to Thessalonica. They're in Thessalonica for only a short time when the Jews caused a scene, causing them to flee from Thessalonica to Berea. When in Berea, some of those same Jews from Thessalonica show up in Berea, cause another scene, and at this point, Paul flees to Athens, leaving Silas and Timothy behind at Thessalonica. In Athens, Paul is ridiculed and very few people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which sometimes is worse than facing open persecution. And so he leaves Athens and he travels 50 miles to Corinth. Corinth is in the southern Greece. It's an isthmus. Therefore, it has all kinds of commercial trade going on. It's a... Uh, for lack of a better way to put it, Corinth is a happening place. Stuff's going on in Corinth. During this time, it's estimated that Corinth roughly had 200,000 residents. Now, if you remember from our study in 1 Corinthians, if you were here then, they, Corinth had some issues. If you want to know um, the issues that Corinth had, just go read 1 Corinthians. That's why we entitled that whole series, Christians Behaving Badly. They had issues. These issues stem from sexuality mainly because Corinth housed a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And inside the temple were roughly 1,000 temple prostitutes, both male and female. And they, they would be prostitutes prostituting, uh, using religion to, to do their prostitution. Corinth was such a wicked and immoral city that the Greeks coined a term. They said to Corinthianize. That, that meant that someone committed sexual immorality with another person. So they'd say, you Corinthianize with that person. Paul arrives into that city with no money. And he's forced to find work. He's trained as a tent maker and he ended up finding, according to verse 1 of our passage, a Jewish tent maker named Aquila. 
and his wife, whose name was Priscilla, they fled Rome due to a recent anti-Semitic stir, and Paul stayed with them, and he began to work. To be clear, this is the first indication that we have in Paul's missionary journey where he had to work in his trade in order to support himself. We also do not know whether Aquila and Priscilla were led to Christ by Paul or whether they were already Christians when he stayed with them. We don't know. Regardless of the fact, this is where Paul is at in his journey. It sounds like a great time, doesn't it? Just everything's going perfect for Paul. Called by the Lord, doing the Lord's work, and his life's just great, isn't it? No. Now look with me at verse 4. You see what it says? And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Listen carefully, church. Because I don't know if we can totally fathom this. Paul was physically beaten in Philippi. Most likely had not yet even fully recovered from his beating. He had spiritual concerns for the church that he planted in Thessalonica. We know this from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He was discouraged about ministry. He was constantly facing opposition. He was lonely. He was hurting. He was worn out. He was in pain. He had no money. This, my dear friends, is a burden. Yet Paul is still faithful he still goes into the synagogue and still preaches Jesus he doesn't quit he doesn't give up the fact is followers of Christ go through great difficulties however even in the midst of such great difficulties there is some light because we read in verse 5 Silas and Timothy arrive not only do they arrive but no doubt they have brought news that the churches in Macedonia are doing well and they bring a gift from the church in Philippi we know this because in Philippians chapter 4 we read that Paul received a gift from the church at Philippi and in 2 Corinthians which is where he is at Corinth in Corinth, he says this, that the brothers of Macedonia supplied his need, so he was not a burden to anyone in Corinth. So Paul is able to be fully devoted to the ministry of the word, which we saw clear back in Acts chapter 6, which is what the apostles were supposed to be doing. However, even though this is the case, the Jews still fiercely opposed him. In fact, they opposed him so much. Look at what verse 6 says. He shook out his garments and said to them, you, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if I stood up here and just kind of shook off my shirt? Your blood be on your own heads. I'm out of here. I mean, that's what Paul did. Facing opposition. That's pretty dramatic. But that's exactly what happened. Paul then begins to minister right next door, it says. Right next door in the home of a man named Titius Justus who was a new Gentile believer and Paul sees Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, converted. Additionally, it says that many of the Corinthians were, were believing and being baptized. Now you would think that this is great. Surely Paul is on cloud nine, yet that's not the case. It was as if Paul could not overcome this fear. It was like, uh, like in the back of his mind, Fear kept creeping in on Paul to the point that maybe his stomach would, would churn and he would not feel well. 
Have you ever had that where you are so afraid of something that you are so afraid to deal with something that you think, man, I'm going to puke everywhere. You ever gone through that? I have a feeling that's where Paul was at. Why would Paul have this fear? Well, because it was like he was stuck doing the same thing over and over again. Like he was in that movie Groundhog Day. My wife doesn't, that's one of my, I like that movie. My wife doesn't like that movie. She doesn't like me to watch it, okay? I like Groundhog Day. I think it's hilarious. But he, he would go and preach to the Jews. He would see a response. Those that did not respond would get jealous. They would stir up opposition. He would flee for his life. And he just did that over and over and over and over again. So yeah, Paul's fearful. Why? Because he just saw the leader of the synagogue converted and others as well. So what does that mean? That means soon people are going to get mad and they're going to drive him out of town. Who knows, Paul may have been thinking, I'm going to get out of here before they even get mad. I'm out of here. He was afraid. He was discouraged. He had passed through great difficulty. And if this is the life of the Apostle Paul. If he can go through fear and discouragement and hurt, then you can rest assured as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ and as followers of Christ, you can rest assured that you and I will go through the same thing. But don't miss the next point, God helps his servants. God helps his servants, church. I want to spend the next little bit of time seeing how it is that God helps Paul. The reason why I want to do this is because perhaps you're here today and you, like Paul, are going through a difficult time. Maybe you're beat up. Maybe you're let down. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you look at, at our church and, and, even, and you think, well, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. Maybe you think, Lord, I need help. Well, the good news is God helps his servants. First, God helps by sending co-laborers and friends. God helps by sending co-laborers and friends. We do not have a record of how Paul actually met Aquila and Priscilla. Regardless of how they met, God used the anti-Semitic views of the Roman Empire to force this couple to move to Corinth because Paul was about out of money. He was looking for a job. And so God, in his providence, brings Paul and Aquila and Priscilla together. We know that later they would go to Ephesus and uh, with Paul and they would host a church in their home eventually these two would return to Rome where they would also host a church Aquila and Priscilla were so close to Paul that Paul writes they risked their own lives for his sake and that all the churches of the Gentiles all the churches this is what Paul says all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to Aquila and Priscilla Even more so, one of the last verses that Paul ever penned before he was executed, he sends greetings to Aquila and Priscilla. Paul needed help. He's hurting in a bad way. And the Lord sent him laborers, co-laborers, and friends. Not only did the Lord send Aquila and Priscilla, but he also sent Silas and Timothy to rejoin Paul in Corinth. 
As we stated earlier, they brought encouraging words from those in Thessalonica and Philippi, and therefore all these saints are co-laborers with Paul. The Lord sends help to Paul by letting him know he's not alone. You're not alone, Paul. You have co-laborers. You have people with you and friends that are, that are going to help you, that are concerned for the cause of Christ. Church, when we come to Christ as Savior, you become a part of the body of Christ we are members of one another and Jesus is our head. We are not designed to do this thing, to walk this life on our own. In fact, we desperately need the help of one another. And sadly, rather than showing our dependence on each other too often, we are too busy and too angry at one another. And we're too busy backbiting one another and we're too busy gossiping about one another and we're too busy you know talking about each other rather than coming to the aid of one another when we should be praying for each other when we should be doing what scripture tells us bearing the burdens of one another not looking for a way to tear each other down but looking for a way to build one another up in the faith let me just say that for me as a pastor, it is a great encouragement when I see church members laboring together with me for the cause of Christ. And it's a great discouragement when I see church members who refuse to do so and instead are content to do nothing but tear one another down. God helps by sending co-laborers and friends. But look how else he helps. In verse 5, God helps by providing finances for the work. God helps by providing finances for the work. We have no record of Paul going around trying to drum up money. In fact, Paul would often focus on the needs of others over his own needs. And when Paul ran out of money, he just started making tents because that's what he knew how to do because that was his trade and he would do this until the Lord provided for him. Now, I do not believe that it's wrong for Christian workers to make their, their, their needs known. I don't think that's wrong. I'm simply saying that we do not see Paul doing that. It's my personal belief that, uh, that, and one that I believe is biblical when it comes to finances, that we should give all we can to the Lord's work. You know, we hear a lot about giving a tithe in churches today. We hear a lot of people say, well, have you tithed? We put a great emphasis on that. And in our heads, we think that a tithe is 10%. And I would say that if you want to think like that, it's okay. I mean, if you really want to think, hey, I got to give my tithe, that's okay to think like that. But it's not 10%. In fact, the true tithe was more like 30%. So I just, church, 10% is not the ceiling. It's the floor. Do you understand that? It's not where we stop. It should be where we start. What I'm saying is that if you're capable to give 90% of your income and living off of 10, then you should do it. And as crazy as that, as that sounds, it's been done by some people. Possibly that everyone at some point should know what it is to live by faith financially and to see the Lord provide for a need as opposed to just being able to provide for that need yourself. You know, we just had our uh, business meeting last Sunday night where we went over our budget and just like last year, we'll most likely close the year in a hole. And I know as a pastor, the single greatest budgetary expense in our church 
is my salary. And I also know that if we want to do things here, like say, put up a new sign out front, or we want to do something to, to the church, or we want to do something to make it look better. I also know that we've we got to be meeting our budget if we want to do that. That means we can't close the year in the hole. Now you perhaps are wondering, why am I saying this? Well, because I don't want to be the only one praying for the finances of a church. I don't want to be the only person saying, Lord, I know you can supply and, and, and pray for people to give. What if we all prayed? What if we all dug a little deeper? What if some of us who don't give started giving? Or what if some of us who could give more did give more? What if we said, you know, I don't want the church to keep drawing money out of their savings account. We want to close the year with a surplus. And so we gave more. What if we are all in prayer and all on board and then the Lord chooses to bless us and we're all encouraged. So let's, let's all ask and let's see what the Lord does. And if he chooses to do something great, let's rejoice in that knowing that God has financed the work, work in our church. And he can continue to do so. Because that's how the Lord helps. He provides finances for the work. Thirdly, God helps by bringing converts even when others are opposed. Paul repeatedly faced opposition. <coughs> Corinth's no different. However, God still brought people to salvation, including the synagogue leader and his family and the neighbor of the synagogue. And verse 8 tells us, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Remember, these Corinthians were some heavy sinners if we're going to weigh sin. In fact, Paul lists their sin. He calls them former fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminates, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. This is the people that are converted and eventually make up the church at Corinth. Now, some people wouldn't want those kind of folks in their church, but praise be to God that where sin is great, grace is greater. Where sin makes us dirty, grace makes us clean. These were the people that made up the church at Corinth, a bunch of former heathens. There's no other way to say it. Just like you and I. I hope that you pray and pray often that God would use our church and, and use you to lead people into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I hope that you cry out to God on a regular basis to put sinners in your pathway so that you would share the gospel with them. Church, if we're not reaching the lost, then we've forgotten our mission. I hope that our church is looking for those that need Christ. Let me just say that if you're discouraged, if you need help, uh, nothing will encourage you more than to lead someone to Christ. It's encouraging. Our church needs more than, than just to come in on Sunday morning and keep doing the same thing over and over again. But we need to see people led to Christ. We need to see people get saved. And nothing fires a church up more than when someone gets saved. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a Wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. 
if God can save a wretch like me or like these Corinthians, he can surely save someone in Washington, Illinois. God helps by bringing converts. May he help us only because we're faithful to the mission by bringing converts. Look how it's God helps. Verses 9 through 11. God helps by giving his presence, protection, and purpose. God helps by giving his presence, his protection, and his purpose. In the midst of his, of his struggles, the Lord appeared to Paul and brought great encouragement. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This was not just some sort of a feeling, but Paul saw Christ. He heard him speak. Now, I'm not going to say that God does not do this today. But I do think that it is that it, that that. That's not normal, but instead God uses his word often to bring encouragement to our hearts and lives and his spirit to give confirmation and to speak to us and to help us. Let's look at that real quick. First, let's look at the Lord helps by giving his presence. Interesting enough, uh, we just talked about this a little bit last week in our Sunday school class. One of the things I brought up was that the Lord is omnipresent, meaning he is always present. With that said, let's notice a few things first. Notice, as we already said, the Lord appeared to Paul. Appeared to Paul, making his presence known. But why? Why appear to him? What about those times that Paul didn't have a vision? What about us? Is the Lord present? Do we have his presence with us? Well, notice that the Lord confirmed his presence to Paul when he said in verse 10, for I am with you. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission to his disciples? I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. We also have his great promise that the Lord gave through the prophet Isaiah to Israel but its application is for all who are called by his name. When he says this, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Let me just say this morning, that maybe you're here and you're going through a difficult time this morning and you're going through a hard time. Can I just tell you this morning that you are not alone? The Lord God is with you. Wherever you go and whatever you're going through, He is with you. Take comfort in His presence. But not only does he give the, the reassurance of his presence, but he helps by giving his protection. He says to Paul, no one will attack you or harm you. Now to be clear, this does not mean that we will never be attacked or harmed. This is, this is not some sort of general promise for everybody. It's not about every single believer. What was a promise to Paul for his time in Corinth? 
We know that there are times where Paul suffered attacks. But for now, during this time in Corinth, God promised his protection. This is not for us to take and run with and, and say, oh, well, look, you know, I'm never going to go through hurts or, or I'm never going to be attacked. We're never promised that God's always going to keep us safe and protect us, that, that we would be uh, safe all the time. That's a false notion. We know of missionaries that are in the midst of the will of God who suffer and are even been killed because of their witness for Christ. But you can rest assured in this, church, that no one can touch you or harm you unless it's the purpose of the Father. And that as long as He has a mission for you to accomplish, you can rest assured that He will protect you in order to carry out His mission it's a guarantee because he's in control of all things he helps by giving his protection no one can do anything to you believer apart from God's purpose he will protect you thirdly he helps by giving purpose he helps by giving purpose in the vision the Lord says to Paul, For I have many in this city who are my people. Many have come, it says, in Corinth. When he says, I have many in this city, he is obviously referring to others, not the many that have already come. He's saying, I have many others in this city. That are my people. That are my people. He's obviously referring to his elect. Those chosen before the foundation of the world. Only in Jesus Christ. God knows them by name. Paul did not know who they were. We don't know who they are. Until they place their faith in Jesus Christ. What did Paul have to do? He had to preach the gospel. We see where God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come together. Some say that, that this doctrine of election is not in Scripture and that it's false because it's all, it's all through Scripture. Some say that if someone were to hold to the view of election, that means they do not do evangelism because if God chose people before the foundations of the world, which by the way, He does. If you don't believe me, look up Ephesians chapter 1 it's pretty clear, then it must be a done deal and there's no need to share the gospel. Again, that is false and it stems from se several fundamental misunderstandings. But let me be clear, God not only ordains salvation, but He also ordains the means of salvation, which is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was so in Corinth and it's so today. The doctrine of election should not prevent anyone from sharing the gospel. But instead it should motivate us to share the gospel. Because if salvation is up to man. No one will ever, ever, ever be saved. When you share the gospel with them. They would never make a decision for 
Christ. Because they can't. Because no man will ever understand the gospel. Because they are fallen. They're separated from God. And apart from God's sovereign grace, they will never get it. That's why we have Romans chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which makes it abundantly clear that man in his fallen state cannot come to Christ. The problem is, is everybody is in a fallen state. If given a free choice, every fallen sinner will choose sin. However, if God purposed to save a sinner and Jesus shed his blood to redeem that sinner and the Holy Spirit imparts eternal life and saving faith to that sinner, then they hear the gospel. Then there's hope when we share the gospel. This is why the Lord says, Paul, I have many in this city who are my people. This is why Paul will later write in 2 Timothy chapter 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Listen, perhaps this morning you're going through a difficult time. Please know that God helps by sending co-laborers, that he helps by sending friends, that he helps by providing finances, that he helps by bringing converts, that he helps by, by, by even when those are opposed to what you're doing, he still brings converts. He helps by giving his presence. He helps by giving his protection. He helps by giving you a purpose. And God helps in spite of government and enemies. He helps in spite of government and enemies. Verses 12 through 18, we see this clearly laid out. The Lord told Paul that he would not be physically harmed, but he did not say that people would not oppose him. The Jews went to the governor, Gallio, in, in an attempt to get rid of Paul, saying that he taught people to violate the law. However, the governor felt it was a religious matter and refused to hear the case. And what happens next is kind of unclear because we don't really know other than we know that this poor guy, Sothenes, gets beat up. It is grabbing and beating. Bottom line is this, that God helps in spite of the government, in spite of enemies. These things did not prevent God from doing what he wants to do because he's a ruler over all of them. Even Gallio, the governor of this time, in fact, Christianity would have a measure of protection for 10 years because of this ruling. The Lord helps inspire the, uh, uh, in spite of the government. It's not, he, he can use the government to accomplish his purpose. He helps in spite of enemies. God helps his servants. The last thing I want to share with you this morning is this. We must remain faithful in spite of difficulty. Verse 9, the Lord appears to Paul and what's he say to Paul? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What was Paul's response? Verse 11 tells us, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I don't believe that God would have showed up and told Paul not to be afraid unless Paul was afraid. Now the apostle Paul was bold. 
He preached to hostile crowds. He stood for truth. If he could be afraid, so can we. In fact, fear is one of the biggest temptations for many believers and for most pastors. And yet the lack of fear is what's needed. Too often, out of fear, pastors become pleasers of people rather than pleasers of God. Let me be honest, there are times that pastors are afraid to say certain things found in God's word out of fear. There are times that pastors are afraid to take a stand out of fear. Well, that person might get mad at me. That person might leave the church. But if we refuse to follow God's word, we are not remaining faithful. The gospel is not all unicorns and rainbows and God loves you. And wants nothing more for you than for you to just be happy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you're a lost sinner alienated from a holy God. And the only cure for your sinful condition is the shed blood of God's sinless son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you must repent of your sin and trust in Christ in order to be saved from the wrath of God. If we don't confront people with their sin, then it's not the gospel that we proclaim. It's something entirely different. Listen, my challenge to you this morning, church, is that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your difficulty, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of whatever you are going through in life today, in the midst of all the tears and all the heartache and all the challenges, my challenge to you is that you know that God offers help and that you and I must remain faithful. Faithful to the call to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must refuse to be derailed from the call. You know, I've had the wonderful privilege of being in ministry for just over 23 years. Just over 20 of those, well, right around 20 of those years, I was a student pastor. For three, just over three of those years, I've been pastor here at First Baptist Church in Washington and by God's grace I'll be here much longer and even though I often feel inadequate I praise God for his help it was roughly nine years ago in my ministry when I went through a very rough time in ministry I was called into an elders meeting had accusations leveled against me that were not true And in those same meetings, my best friend in the church said and shared things about my personal life that I'd shared with him in confidence. People in a church where I had faithfully served for nine years were demanding my dismissal. I sat through meetings where letters were read about me, questioning things like how I spent my personal money to accusations made that that I didn't love my family. Mean and hurtful and untrue things were read and repeated over and over and over again. Many things were stated that are not worth repeating. And this was from people that I trusted, people that I loved, and people I'd spent years in ministry with. My wife was pregnant with our second child, going through a difficult pregnancy. In all likelihood, we knew our son was going to be born early. I had no friends to turn to. I had nowhere to go. I knew nothing else. All I knew how to do was to 
be a pastor. All of my family was 16 hours away. I handed in my resignation, and a week after our son was born, and one day after he was released from the hospital, in my mid-30s, I packed up my family, and I moved in with my mom. What a successful life of a student pastor. Over the course of the next few years, I had doubts. I had people tell me, give up. I had people say, why well, stay in ministry? There's no money in ministry anyway. I had people saying loving and hurtful things. I was discouraged. I mean, after all, what was I doing with my life? Who lives with their mom and their family at the age of 30 years old? I was not fully providing for my family. I was hurting. I was disgusted with myself. I was disgusted with everything about who I was. I felt as if I was never going to be in full-time ministry ever again. Church, listen to me. The Lord helped me. He sent me friends. Oh, the stories I could tell you of how the Lord helped us financially. I saw people come to the Lord and yes, I knew His presence and I knew His protection and I knew He had a purpose and He helped in spite of those who spoke evil of me and praise the Lord that even though many times I wanted to give up and I wanted to quit and honestly there are times still that there are hard times in the midst of the call of God but I want you to know I remain faithful and I challenge you church remain faithful in spite of difficulties praise God if I would given up I wouldn't be here today I wouldn't be your pastor today, but you got to put up with me a while longer. Church, don't give up. No matter your difficulty, stand firm on the truth of God's word, because even in the midst of your enemies, he helps you. And I don't know about you. But I believe he has many people in this city. And I believe we need to faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to see them converted. So church, I ask you this morning, are you remaining faithful even in the midst of difficulty this morning? Are you remaining faithful? Perhaps the Lord has has just spoken to your conscience this morning. You've not been faithful. You just need to pray. Maybe you need to pray on your own in your pew. Maybe you'd like someone to pray with you. I'd gladly do that. Or maybe this morning you don't even know Christ. You have nothing to be faithful to. I'd love to share Christ with you. So you can know for sure how to go to heaven. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. If the Lord's spoken to you and you feel like you need to respond in any way, I'll be standing down front. I'd love to grab you by the hand and pray with you or talk with you or whatever it is that you need this morning. Let's close our time of prayer.